Welcome to episode 149 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin, and today we are talking about the importance of ethics. Whether you are a speech therapist or a BCBA, you know that ethics is very, very important to what we do. And today I have a wonderful conversation with Dr. Linda LeBlanc. If you're not familiar with Dr. Linda LeBlanc, she is a PhD, BCBAD, a licensed psychologist, and is the president of LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting and the past editor-in-chief of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. Today we talk about how to embed ethics into our everyday. That ethics isn't something that we should just talk about when we have to take our required ethics CEUs because we have that as speech therapists and BCBAs. And that is a good thing. And it's not just something that we talk about when we're taking a course on ethics. It really is something that needs to be embedded into our everyday. And we are going to talk all about that today on episode 149 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. Let's get right on into this critical conversation. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Welcome to episode 149 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have an amazing guest for you today. We have with us Dr. Linda LeBlanc. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited for my listeners to hear from you today. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. 149 podcasts. That's amazing. (laughs) What a good run. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes. And my husband's always like, aren't you going to run out of stuff to talk about? And I'm like, "Mm, (laughs) you don't know what's going on up here. You know what I'm saying? um, But thank you so much for coming on. I'm just a big fan of your work. And I heard you personally speak um, here in Ohio in February of 2020. It was one of our last in-person conferences before things became hybrid and a little more complicated due to COVID. COVID, but I really loved all the information you shared. And um, I am very thrilled for people just to learn about you and your journey. If I have listeners that are speech therapists, obviously, because I'm a speech therapist and BCBA. So some speech therapists may not be aware that you are such a dynamo in the field, but I'm excited to, uh, to learn about you and your journey into the field and really how you decided that this was the route that you wanted to take for your career. Well, um, I'm excited to tell you about that. And, you know, you are duly credentialed as a speech language pathologist and a BCBA, and I am as well. I'm a BCBA and a licensed clinical psychologist. So I kind of got into this um, in my clinical psychology PhD program. Um, I went into that program knowing that my interest was autism and intellectual developmental disabilities. Um, And the program that I was at, Louisiana State University, was a very behavioral clinical program and also had a very behavioral school psychology program. So that's really, I guess, I... Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but as a duly credentialed person, sometimes you kind of feel like, do the other ones feel like I'm all the right kind like them? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I do think that whether we intend to or not, you know, we can make those divisions. And so um, I uh, 
consider myself both, probably like you consider yourself <laughs> both, but it's an interesting spot to sit in as a yes. dually credentialed person. Yes, it is not easy, especially with the rift of SLPs and BCBAs. So I always say when I'm a room full of BCBAs, I'm usually very popular. And when I'm in a room full of SLPs, um, I don't know, I think it's like 60% of people might be thinking, Ooh, she's a BCBA, and forty percent might be thinking, "Oh, she's a BCBA." Yeah, you know. So it's all about the emphasis on the syllable. Um, but oh, but that's interesting. I didn't know you were duly certified like that. But it is, yeah. It's kind of an interesting spot to be in. Ne- never easy, you know. So is life. But um, but I'm sure it gives you a great perspective. And I think the thing, um, you know, I had Dr. Amber Valentino on the podcast. I know that you uh, have a, a great relationship with her, and I feel like you guys are really um great at using research, obviously so much research, but allowing uh, to use in an understandable language so that when you're doing a keynote at a large conference um, that you're like, wow, you know, it's just what you need. It's like exciting. It's evidence-based and you feel like you can use it to transform your therapy. That's what I hope that I can be like that um, to some people too. But I think that well, I'm glad to hear that I am like that to <laughs> yes, some people. It's always are. the goal, you know, yes. to, to really think about the audience Mm -hmm. perspective when you're speaking to people and that most people prefer things to be understandable, practical, you know, useful takeaways. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you for that. I appreciate it. (laughs) No problem. Um, And today, I know we're going to talk about ethics. So if you're listening and you're not haven't, if I haven't told you, um, I've been teaching an ethics class for people who are becoming BCBAs here at Kent State. And I've been doing that for about five years now. Uh, And as a speech therapist, we offer ASHA-approved CE courses and ACE courses about ethics. What's interesting about the ethical guidelines for BCBAs is we take a course, a three semester course, and we are tested on that. And it's just every day, you know, most clinics have an ethical committee and it's something that's talked about weekly, daily. It is really a part of what we do. Speech language pathologists, we do have an ethical guideline, an ethical code, but we, and please message me if I'm wrong, but I never took an entire class on the ethics of being a speech language pathologist. It's we definitely have it. And Asha has that information. And actually, it was just revamped a little while ago. And I do a lot of trainings. That's why I'm very in touch with all of that information. But for me, I think as a speech therapist who maybe went to school, heard about it, maybe now we have to have ethics CEs. That's just kind of something new in the past couple of years that through Asha, we have to have 0.1 or one hour. Um, but I feel like there's a really heavy emphasis. And I don't know if it's just the difference of our scope of practice, SLP versus BCBA. Um, but for people who are new to the field, can you share with us the importance of ethics in general? It's a major piece of what we talk about as BCBAs, uh, for sure. It sure is. Um, and I think it, the thinking about ethics every day, every hour, every moment is important. And uh, I love the emphasis on ethics and then it's been ever growing. So I mentioned I was a licensed psychologist long before I was a board certified behavior analyst. And so I was already bound to a code of ethics, the APA code of ethics, um, before there was a codified uh, BCBA, uh, you know, ethics code for behavior analysts. Um, You know, for many people in behavior analysis, whether you're an RBT or a BCBA, we tend to, not me anymore, but the other ones tend to be quite young. 
And so for many of them, this is likely their first professional role Mm -hmm. as a therapeutic agent, where Mm -hmm. it is not just a job where you're paid to do a thing, but where you have the responsibility for the outcome of a person who is vulnerable, that is dependent on what you do, how you behave, not just in terms of the teaching interaction or what have you, but how you set up your services, how you communicate about your services. Um, And I think, so in the very beginning, virtually everything you encounter is new. It will be the first sticky situation where a parent XYZ or the mm-hmm. first sticky situation where you are in someone's home doing your job in circumstances that might feel similar to like when you babysat before, mm-hmm. but when you were not in that, you know, very specific therapeutic role. So a lot of times when you encounter something for the first time, you don't know what to do. You are just responding from your gut. And Mm -hmm. for me, the most important thing about the ethics code are those underlying values that always serve as the pillars for when I'm in a situation and I don't know what to do or something feels at all a little hinky. Um, I don't have to know the numbers of a list and a code. I have to think about, is this consistent with boundaries and relationships that are appropriate for my professional role? You know, is this placing the well-being of my clients or family and provider above my own comfort or what have you? Mm -hmm. And so... It can kind of be that true north compass um, whenever you are encountering something that you haven't encountered before. And that happens throughout your profession, but it happens every day when you are at the beginning of your career. Absolutely. And I feel like there's just a lot of gray area when I put together my scenarios um, in class, in the class that I teach, um, you know, I'm probably a little biased. There's probably a lot that have to do with collaboration and communication because, you know, I come from a place of being duly certified. But I do think that there's a lot of tricky and sticky situations that happen in that collaborative piece of, you know, scope of practice and scope of competence. I do a lot of training on that. And I do think it's nice to have these resources and the code and just to have the CEU requirement that we do as BCBAs, it's pretty rigorous um, because n- not a lot of things are black and white. And even as a person who maybe owns a clinic, then you're dealing with people who, I like that, you're they're in their first professional role. And I can think back to some situations in my first professional role where you're like, ooh, that probably was not the right move. Or, or there were a lot of teachable moments because you're just learning to be a professional. You really are transitioning, especially if you've you know, you're new to being an RBT or you're just fresh out of school from being a newly minted BCBA. Um, I think that, you know, it's not about perfection, but it's about being really in touch with the code. And it's not just something that we have to take a class on. It's something that we're we're very in touch with. And you, like you said, on a daily basis. Um, so what systems can providers put into place so that they're staying in touch with the ethical code and guidelines? Do you have some feedback on that? I do. You know, I think I became doubly 
interested in ethics when I became the executive director of Trumpet Behavioral Health, which was a large provider organization. And um, I knew I had all these wonderful young new professionals that were out there trying to do their best who needed a lot of uh, support and instruction. And what they really needed was a community where it felt positive and safe to talk about ethics. Mm-hmm. And um, so we created what we called the Ethics Network. And we've actually published we published an article on that, I think, in 2020. And then Amber and the uh, current Trumpet team have published an update. But the what we tried to set up was a community where everyone talks about ethics all the time, not when something goes badly. Mm-hmm. Think about in this situation, what are the ethical implications? And those situations are every day. You're mm-hmm. about to write your session note. Mm-hmm. What pops on ethics? How do you think about that? And what should you notice that people are doing well so that you create communities not only of support when things don't go well, but of reinforcement for the everyday? And the better we are at noticing, noticing the appropriate stuff, the more sensitized we also can get to when something doesn't kind of fit that rubric. So I think providers can focus on more small dose discussions about ethics all the time Mm -hmm. and create making it easy and differentially reinforcing people reaching out when they have a question, uh, low jeopardy, high jeopardy, any jeopardy, um, reinforcing asking and wondering and seeking that support. And I think when that happens, we are less likely to get that fearful avoidant response. Mm -hmm. And we are more likely to embrace, oh, wait a minute. It's not the bad people who behave unethically. It's anyone who's in the circumstance that may be new, unusual, they haven't thought things through, Mm -hmm. or they've got other contingencies on their behavior Mm -hmm. that lead them to not be the best version of themselves. That's not to say there aren't some bad actors out there because they are, but the majority of times when we aren't behaving fully right smack in the middle of ethical safety, Mm -hmm. it is... um, not being thoughtful, not being planful, not being intentional, not noticing, and not being in a situation where our colleagues will speak up and say, hey, I'm kind of wondering about that mm-hmm. in a in a non-threatening, attacking way. It is nice to have that community. I love that term small dose discussions. I'll be using that. Um, I think that's a really good idea. And I talk about that a lot too, just around the idea of even of collaboration. It's like, let's get together as a team and talk about how the student's doing, 
all the time so that we don't just have to do it when, you know, a BCBA is coming into a school district and things are going extremely poorly. And we all know how that scenario goes. So Mm -hmm. I like that idea. And I love the idea of an ethics network. I'm gonna have to look that article up because I think that's something that people who are maybe starting a clinic. I just, you know, I do consultations with people that are maybe adding speech to their clinic or have all these little ideas. But I think once we have something that's kind of embedded like that, where we are having these regular discussions, that we can get some of these things a framework. Because I think that's what's hard for people that are in the trenches that are direct line staff. If they have, if they're working for a clinic and it's a new clinic and it's a new clinic owner, they're probably just trying to get insurance going and making sure that they're staffed correctly. And but this is extremely important because that's sometimes what happens if there's not maybe a note that says, you know, we don't accept Christmas presents or Hanukkah presents or whatever it is that comes up a lot in our discussions in class. And I will say, well, you know, what is your clinic? Do they have a thought on that? Do they send something out to to parents? Because proactively, proactively like before the holidays. Right. Yeah. So these are things to think about too, if you're a clinic owner, because I know it's there's a lot of balls in the air, but I do think this one is really important just so that it's a framework, it's embedded. It's not something that we just talk about when something is going wrong or something has happened, because you know what? Things are always going to happen. They're going to happen with the work um, that we do. So I love, I love that idea. Um, but I did hear that you were coming out with a new book about ethics. So I'm hoping that you can share about that because I'm always looking for good ethics resources, whether it's a new course I'm developing. I develop a lot of ASHA and ACE courses. Um, and I always, I, I really love ethics because, and that may sound really kind of dry, but obviously you do too. Um, and I think we're fun. I don't know. You know, I do. I like to talk about the topic because it's so important. It's something that everybody needs. So it's, we always have a lot of ears listening in when we talk about ethics, right? So um, can you share with us about the book? Yes. So um, it will be published by Sloan Publishing. And um, this is actually my second book with Sloan Publishing. The first one was on supervision and mentoring. And this one is called Ethics, Proactive and Practical Decision-Making for Behavior Analysts. So it it really is designed to support all behavior analysts, but certainly those practicing behavior analysts um, in their kind of building their own personal framework about how they think about ethics. So there are three parts to the book. And the first part is really just about our history and our values and how those constantly evolve and how we understand ourselves and our own behavior and our propensities to maybe avoid or attack in the context of ethics and how we overcome that to choose a more calm, problem-solving, decision-making approach Part two goes through each portion of the code, not only talking about the code, but about why that section of the code matters, the big picture purpose, the values that underlie each part of the code, and the risks that we might not recognize if we don't get it right. And then we talk about, for each section of the code, what can you do proactively like right now today, so that in the future, you are less likely to drift towards um, that 
mistake that could lead you to unethical responding. So a big theme of the book is don't think about um, ethical mistakes as what the other person does. You know, you'll notice that when it happens. And of course, you should and have a calm conversation about it. But also be a wise steward for yourself. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we can do every day Mm -hmm. that will set us up to to make it easier to behave within the ethical guidelines and more noticeable or less likely to behave outside of it. Mm -hmm. And part three is that very practical everyday dig in. So, for example, we have a chapter on the role of self-management in ethics. Mm. Like, it's not just knowing the code. If you don't know what all of your responsibilities and duties and deadlines are, you could miss some of those deadlines in a way that leads you to not set your clients as that priority and ensure their access to services or ensure the quality of their services or of the documentation or what have you. Mm -hmm. So stress management and self-management, we talk a little bit about even the role of staying abreast of technology Mm -hmm. and being very thoughtful and proactive, whether it's AI technology or social media, And that history of how some of these kinds of technology tools, which can be wonderful, can also lead people to kind of fall into some unexpected holes Mm -hmm. um, that they probably never thought of ahead of time, but that we can learn from and then think more carefully about to be proactive in how we manage our ethical behavior. I think that's great to talk about with AI. And I know people are talking about, I saw somewhere that someone's doing an ACE course about AI and ABA. And I'm curious what that is going to entail. And the social media, there was an article long ago that uh, Dr. Amanda Kelly did and some um, other colleagues. And I would always include that in my class because I have an online business. So I built my whole entire business through social media and my email list and dissemination and things like that. But it really hasn't been talked about a lot. So I think that that is really important because whether it's LinkedIn or TikTok or whatever you're on, you know, in 10 years, it's going to be something different, but it still is not going away. You know, it's still going to be here. So having a framework of how to respond on those different platforms, because that whole opens up a whole other area um, that I think is important for us to talk about because it isn't going away and it is growing just as the field grows, people's use of social media. And it's not the worst thing. I mean, I connected with you on LinkedIn. Thanks for that. Um, Even though people may not think of that as social media, it's probably my favorite because there's a lot of BCBAs over on LinkedIn if you're not on there. Um, But I think that's great to talk about it because if we don't have those resources, if we're not having those conversations or those dialogues, you know, it goes back to, too, how is your clinic handling that? Should you be friends with you know, other people you work with on social media, or what if a parent wants to friend you? And I always, that's always, you know, a tricky, it's a tricky situation, just like any ethical um, situation. So I'm glad you're, you're having those conversations. Thank you. We need that. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a great book. And I'm so excited to, um, to read it when it comes out. So where can people find out more about you and your work? I think we're going to share a couple links in the, the show notes, but you have a personal website as well. 
I do have a website for my company, LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting, and I work with universities, provider organizations, and technology companies in the ABA space um, to help in lots of different ways. Um, And people can definitely reach out to me through that website. And then um, check out Sloan Publishing's website. There um, are sample chapters that are available now, and the entire book will definitely be available for purchase or review by faculty members like you um, (laughs) before the end of the year. I think probably by November, it will be ready for people to consider for uh, adoption for coursework Um, or, you know, as a resource to purchase if you have already graduated and you're out there. Um, we've tried to price it affordably mm-hmm. so that any behavior analyst, even if you don't, you know, have to buy that ethics textbook for your course, might find utility in this and could afford it as a resource. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to connect. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.